It is good to be here. I uh, will take care of a couple housekeeping things first, if I might. I bring uh, greetings from the campstress. Uh, we were able to spend the fourth with them. It was an interesting place to spend the fourth since there was no one there celebrating the fourth. They thank you for your prayers and your support, and they hope to be with you all the first Sunday of August. Uh, that's still a little bit up in the air, but that looks like when they're planning the last week of, of July to leave and stop here that first Sunday of August on their way to Canada. So just to be aware of that, Allison continues to make progress. Uh, we've, we've been almost four weeks since we'd seen her, five weeks, and uh, we were able we're quite amazed at the progress that she has made. So she's now walking very short distances without support. Her eyesight, though, is not returned. The doctors have discouraged them from expecting it to return. They are still um, praying to that end, and Trevor's moving forward as if it won't return. So um, that's probably holding her up more than anything else in her progress. She's able to sit up straight. Um, in the past when we were there, she was always laying down. Now she sat on the edge of her chair and was able with her core muscles to hold herself up and did quite well at that. So she's, she's making tremendous progress and um, she seems to be in very good spirits as the whole family does and so continue to pray for them as we all do and, and, and I would encourage you to continue to do so. The other thing is a young man who um, has been in our assembly and might even be moving back, was up at All Boys Week. And I would like to commend the young men from here who were a great encouragement to him during that week. And the fellowship time was there, was great. And he came back very refreshed from tired physically from being at camp, but very appreciative of particularly the young men from Claremont who were a great encouragement to him. I'd like to look at Colossians 2. There are several places I go to speak, and they always ask me the same thing, and what's the theme? And I often don't know until a very short amount of time, and some like to publish it in the bulletin. So I have to make my decision very early on the weeks that I go there. And they always ask me what songs I want to sing, and I will usually tell them, and almost always will tell anyone, is that I trust that if the Spirit's leading me, that the Spirit's leading the song leader. I was at one of the Buena Park conferences, and I was of little faith that day, so I asked him to sing a song, and someone gave it out. So the Lord rebuked me sharply for um, thinking that I needed his help, and he doesn't need my help in that area, and he's taught me that lesson, and sometimes I'm a slow learner. And so I, I want to tell you that the songs we sang this morning were very appropriate for the passage that we're going to look at. We're going to look at Colossians 2, and we're going to start with verse 8. Colossians and Colossians, Paul tells us that Christ is all we need. We sang the song, Complete in Thee, and that is the theme of Colossians, is that we're complete in him, and we don't need anything else. Now, particularly in this passage, he's going to warn us against being diverted from Christ by some moral or religious influence, which is not Christ. I like to see this second chapter as, as against spiritual arrogance. 
Some people want to tell you they have a secret or they have something special or if you only do what they do or you only do it like they do it or you only do, and they're all external. And Paul's going to tell us it's not external. It's internal. The work of Christ in our life is spiritual. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that if there's a spiritual change on the inside, that it will be clearly demonstrated on the outside. However, too often we try to change outwardly when there has been no inward change and we conform to men and what men desire. And in this chapter, he's going to address some of that, first telling us that we're complete in Christ and it's inward what what he has done and not outward. And we need to be careful that we are not beguiled. We are not led astray by those who are looking for outward change or have set up outward change as a mark of your Christianity because God's desire is you change to be like Christ. And if you do that, and you've truly been born again, you will change outwardly. Let's look at, let's start with verse 8 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, where also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can freely read your word. Father, we thank you that you're a God who has entered into time and space as we understand it through your son becoming man and dying for us. And that, Father, through faith in him, we are changed, radically changed. And, Father, as Paul would address this in this passage, we would ask that we'd understand just how radically we've been changed and that everything we need is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so, Father, we would look to the Lord, as we mentioned earlier today, that we would find in him our all in all so that we might show others just who he is by the way we live our lives. Not trying to live that way, but because of the results of an action that has taken place spiritually in us. So, Father, we would commit ourselves to you. We ask your blessings upon our time in the word. We ask that we would be those who are doers and not hearers only, forgetting what we've learned and going about our business as we did before. So, Father, we ask in your name, in your son's most holy and precious name, Father, that you would bless us, and we give you thanks in that name that's above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
beware, be constantly looking out, be watchful. In, the, in this day and age, there's so much stuff on television that um, you turn it on and it seems like there's some new thing, there's some new spiritual guru, there's some new thing being taught that would entice people away from the basics of Christ. And we need to guard against that. You know, the health and wealth doctrine is, is rampant. I want to tell you it was rampant in the first century. It's still going on today. And there's spiritual... It's hard to put it into words, but there's some who say that you have to do certain things, like speak in tongues, in order to truly be spiritual. There's all these things they've added to it as marks of what spirituality is. And he's telling us to be constantly... a aware. Be on our guard. Be on our guard. And what does he specifically tell us? Philosophy and vain deceit. Philosophy and vain deceits that are after the traditions of men. Now the Jews were guilty of that when the, when the Lord was here. We read that in Matthew 15. It says thus, thus have you made the commandments of God of non-effect by your tradition, ye hypocrites? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their hearts are far, far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now one of the great problems with the religious leaders of Jesus' time is also a great problem in our time is it's not heartfelt devotion to God. We're sort of going through the motions. And we're not so much concerned with what God thinks of us as we're concerned with what others think of us. I'll say that again. One of the great problems today is the same ones they had during Jesus' time is people are more concerned about what others think of them, particularly in the church, than what God thinks of them. And so he's telling you, be careful of that. Be careful you don't fall into that. The Greeks sought after wisdom. They wanted to solve mysteries of life and universe. We have a lot of that going on today. The Greeks had two main philosophies. One was Stoicism, live nobly and death cannot matter. Hold your appetite in check. Careful what you do. And then the other one was Epicureanism, which was eat, drink, and be merry. Most of us have heard of that one. Live life to the fullest because tomorrow you die. And unfortunately, those crept into the church also. And so people were judging each other on those things, and he's telling them, don't do that. Because in the first chapter, turn back a page to the 28th verse. Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is not about the do's and don'ts. And we often miss that. Notice what Paul says in the 28th verse of the first chapter, whom we preach. Christianity is about a person. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about a list of duties you have to perform. It's about a person. Paul preached a person. Paul could say, I preach 
Christ crucified. I preach Christ crucified because he preached a person. And so he's telling you, don't get caught up in those who do, who, who do do's and don'ts. Don't get caught up in the traditions and the philosophies because Christianity really isn't that. Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so let's look at verse 9. Then he goes on to tell us that. For it pleased the Father... For in him dwelleth all in the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In the first chapter, in verse 19, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And so he's going to develop this idea that he started in the first chapter that everything dwells. The fullness of God dwells. And secondly, he's going to point out that it's bodily, that Jesus Christ was a man. I think it's important that we remember that. And the word was made flesh and dwelled among us, John told us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he tells us, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. None of this, he was just a spirit. None of this, he was man. And the Bible teaches that over and over and over again. First, Corinthians, uh, First Timothy 3.16 says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of Godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Man, with their philosophy, would try to explain that. It's not knowable to the finite mind. It's beyond our grasp. I'm so glad that I have a God who's greater than I am. It bothers me so much when people try to make God understandable to their limited mind. My mind's just too limited. Friday night down in Mexico, I was speaking about eternity. I thought I almost got a grasp on eternity. Future. You know, it never ends. That's, I can almost picture never ending. But then I start thinking about eternity past, and then I'm just blown away. I can't, I can't think of it never starting. I mean, it's just, my mind just can't handle those things. And I'm so happy that I have a God who's so much greater than I am. And when people try to explain a God in human terms, and God's so gracious to us, God's so gracious, he uses terms we understand. But then, as natural man is, he likes to take those terms and try to overextend them. So God talks about creating the universe with his fingers. And that he uses right hand and right arm to bring salvation. And so we start picturing God with a hand or an arm. Well, God doesn't have a hand or arm or fingers or eyes or any of those things. God's using terms that you and I can relate to so we can have a better understanding of him. But he's not a man. That he has an arm or eyes. And so we have to be careful as he uses terms that we can relate to, that we then don't confine him to those terms because he's trying to get us to understand him even more and more. God's gracious. I'll tell you, God's gracious. Brother asked me how he knows the will of God, and I said, in my life, one of the things that's often happened is God confirms. I step out in faith, and I walk a path, and God confirms that I'm walking the right path. 
I tell you, I'm sitting here this morning wondering what, you know, whether this is a message God has given me for today. And he confirms it by at least two to three of the things that were said here today. And I said, okay. Not only did he sh show something to me and put it on my heart, he's put it on someone else's heart to me. That's a confirmation. And God, as we study the scriptures, he often comes graciously alongside those who will walk in faith and confirm that they're walking in the right path. Young people come to me and say, how do I know? I said, watch, be aware as God comes along and confirms. He might use others to confirm it. He might use some incident, but he'll confirm that you're walking in the right path. Complete in him. Man is empty. Man's incomplete. And it's only through Christ that we can fully be complete. It's only in Christ that we can fully be complete. Verse 11. Now he's going to tell us some things. He's going to tell us some things about how we accomplish that completeness. Some of the verses. Ephesians 3.19 says this, And to know the love of God, Christ, which path this knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's one of the reasons we're complete, because of the fullness of God. We're full. I'm going to say this carefully. We are not made full in him. We are in him made full. It's a fine distinction, but it's his fullness which will translate to us in the life that will glorify him. Colossians 1.30 says, but, or 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who is God, is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's when we're in Christ that we are complete. Sometimes we try to gain completeness. That's not the way it works. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. So let's look at verse 11 now. Paul's going to go on to point out that Christ must be an issue of the heart. It's not external, outward things we can see and measure as humans, but in the heart that matters. And so he's going to give us spiritual examples of things that are outward or, or, or external. It's not the external, it's the internal. He wants us to clearly understand that. And the first one he's going to say, in whom ye are circumcised. Circumcision is an outward physical act. But notice what he's going to tell us, in whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's not talking about physical. He's talking about a spiritual reality. In putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcisions of hand. Distinguished features of this spiritual circumcision are threefold. It's not external but inward, not made with hands but wrought by the Spirit. It divests not part of the flesh but the whole body of carnal affections. It is a circumcision not of Moses and the law but of Christ. Now there's many outward signs that people want you to do to show that you've made it. Circumcision was huge, and it was an issue in the early church because the Jews practiced circumcision. They wanted the Gentiles practice circumcision. They took it as an outward sign of the faith and of, of being of the community of God, and they wanted everyone else to do it. And Paul's saying it's not outward. It's an inward 
thing that has taken place. It's a spiritual thing. And so we see that first as regards to character, second its extent, and third its author. It's of the spirit, it's total, and it's from Jesus Christ, not from the law. Now notice verse 12, he's going to bring up another one, buried with him in baptism. Now baptism is a physical act, but I want to tell you he's not talking about the physical here. He wasn't talking about the physical in circumcision. He's not talking about the physical in baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism, and a lot of people miss that. The Lord brings us through Paul to us a number of different places. Romans 6 is one of those. We don't have time to go to Romans 6 and look at Romans 6. But as once been said, and I believe it's very true, is the first thing when you read Romans 6 is to squeeze all the water out of it because it's not physical baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. Buried with him in baptism, where also you're risen with him to the faith, the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Baptism is a, is a transliteration of a Greek word, which is baptizo, which meant to immerse, but it meant more than immerse. It meant to leave in, and it meant to pull up and out. And so Paul's using this to point out a spiritual truth to us. In Romans 6, 3, he says, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. And so he's, first we're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands that cuts away the body of sin. And then he wants to tell us that we've been baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 4. I'm sorry, we're going to look at chapter 3 tonight, and we're going to look at chapter 3, and he's going to continue on with this illustration of what it means to be baptized and to be risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. The point is, it's through faith that we're raised from the dead. Faith is a means by which the experience of spiritual identification with Christ and his death and resurrection is accomplished. Again and again, we're told to reckon ourselves dead. I'll be real careful when I say this because some people don't like me to tell you this. The Bible does not teach us to die daily. I know that's a popular teaching. Someone came up to me last time I said that and said, didn't Paul say he dies, died daily? I said, absolutely, Paul said that. But he wasn't talking about spiritual death. He wasn't talking about death to self. He was talking about physical death. And if you look carefully, you'll find that in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about the power of the resurrection. And he says, I'm willing to risk my life daily for Jesus Christ because I believe in the power of the resurrection. What Paul does clearly teach is that when Christ died, we died. We don't need to die daily. We need to reckon that when Christ died, we died. What did Paul say? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by what? By faith. By faith. Paul's very consistent because the scriptures are inspired of teaching us the same doctrine over and over and over again. And it's important we grasp it. We are dead with Christ. God sees us as having died with Christ. That's what we're going to get in the next verse. 
And you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, have thee quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. And the picture that he's going to draw us is that when Christ died, we died. And when Christ was risen from the dead, we were raised from the dead. A great passage to look at in concerns of that is Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 1. Paul clearly says in Ephesians 1 that he wants, he's praying for the saints to do what? To understand all that they have in Jesus Christ. And one of the things they have in Jesus Christ is the same power that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead, when God raised him from the dead. And a lot of people stop reading at the end of the first chapter, and chapter division sometimes can be problematic, because what does it say in the verse? verse? Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and now he has quickened us. Now he's quickened us. The Bible teaches us that when we, we were dead, we were died with Christ, and now we've been made alive. And the same resurrection that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead is a resurrection which has made us alive. And so he says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcisions of your flesh, parallel passage of Ephesians 2 and 1, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Man has a problem. We're dead in our sins. And God solves that problem. And he solves the problem through Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell us exactly how that happened in verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Nailing it to his cross. We have been raised the newness of life because we died with Christ. And the picture that Paul uses, which we can lose a little bit because we're not used to the Roman customs, but the Roman custom was that when you were sentenced and found guilty of something, they would write down what your guilt was and they would put it on your jail cell and anybody who came along could look and see exactly what the charges were against you. We see this when Christ was crucified because they had to put a charge against him and what charge did they put against him? That he was king of the Jews. And so the picture that he's drawing here is that when we were in our jail cell sentenced to death, that Christ took those charges and he nailed them to his cross. And there's no reason for anyone to pay the penalty for their own sins. So he took those charges and he nailed it to his cross and he died to pay that penalty. And that's the picture that Paul's drawing for us. That our sins, those things we were guilty of, those things that we're rightly condemned to death for, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And when God sees Jesus Christ die, he sees us dying in Christ. He sees us dying in Christ. 
So what does he say in Romans 6 again? He says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We died with Christ, and just as Christ was buried, we were buried. And just as Christ rose from the dead, we've been risen to newness of life. Let's look at that. Let's look at Ephesians 1. Let's, we got time. Let's just turn back to Ephesians 1 and look at Ephesians 1. Paul teaches this as a number of different places and a number of different things, and yet it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to grasp for some of us. Verse 19, this is Paul's prayer. That your eyes, in verse 18, that your eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Now flip over to the next chapter. And what does Paul say? And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're buried, you're made alive. That same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is what makes you alive by newness of life. And why did you need to be raised from the dead? Because God sees you as dying with Jesus Christ. Keep going. Verse but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The theme of Ephesians is we are citizens of heaven. We are sitting with Christ. Just as he saw us die with Christ, he sees us sitting with Christ in resurrected glory. Just as he sees us dying with Christ, he sees us raised with Christ, sitting in resurrection glory. Now, when he comes to Colossians, he's telling us that Christ, that we're complete in Christ. And he's explaining the process of why we're complete in Christ. And he's explaining the process of how our sins were justly paid for. Because when Christ died, we died. The illustration is, is that if you, in this country, you can't go through double jeopardy. So if you're found guilty of a crime, once you serve your penalty, you're done. And you're walking down, you can never serve time for that penalty again. Well, the scriptures tell us that our penalty as sinners is death. Is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty must be paid. And in Romans 3, what are we told? That God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. God's not a judge who overlooks your sin. God doesn't say, Ricky, you're handsome, so you're good. Because then that would leave ugly people like me totally out. No, God's a just judge. God holds everybody accountable for their sin. And so the picture that Paul's drawing us is that someone else stepped forward and substituted himself. 
And that's why Romans 3 uses the big word propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus Christ stepped forward to satisfy the just demands of the law. And Paul illustrates that here in this passage when he says he nailed our sins to his cross. Our penalty was served. Now, if someone goes in and they can't quite figure out how they're going to do this anymore, but when someone is sentenced to death and the execution is carried out and the doctor comes in and says, this man's dead, he served his crime, he's dead, I pronounce him dead, and if an hour later the guy got up off the table and walked out, guess what the judicial system could do about it? Absolutely nothing. Because he served his penalty. And that's the picture that we're drawn here. Our penalty was served by another, and the law no longer has any demands on us. We're freed from that. We're freed from that because our penalty was rightly served by Jesus Christ because it nailed it to his cross. And what Paul's trying to tell us in a doctrinal way is that God saw, sees us dying, being crucified with Christ. Being crucified with Christ. And grasping that makes a huge difference. It could mean that we give up trying so hard and let Christ do it for us. It could mean that we start allowing Christ to work in us and through us and out of us so that truly we might live a victorious life. Verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In Ephesians 1, he mentions the same thing. He wants us to know that there was a great battle over sin and death and hell and that battle was won at Calvary that day. It starts back in the garden. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy heel head, sorry, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There is a great battle at Calvary that the Lord God said in the beginning when sin first entered in, he said that the seed of the woman would do battle against Satan. And Satan's head would be crushed. But it would not be without a cost. That the seed of the woman would suffer pain and winning that battle. And so we see that he was crucified. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians tells us that he was crucified through weakness. They stood around and mocked him and said, if you saved others, save yourself. If you be the Christ, come down from the cross. He claimed to be God and he can't even help himself. That's because he was dying for a purpose. And he was dying for my sins and for your sins. And God raised him from the dead. And God's given him a great victory. 
Psalm 68 and 18 says this, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts of men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. And Paul's continuing with the Roman culture and the Roman pictures. He's, he has a picture of the returning victorious army and the returning victorious general. And in the proceeding up in front were those who were destined for death. And they were in chains and they walked in front. And the parade was huge and the crowd was huge. And then in the back were those who were captives, the slaves. And Paul draws us this picture that Christ has risen in victory. He has won such a tremendous battle that he's entering in, having spoiled all the forces that were against him. First Corinthians 15, 55 says this, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin, death, and hell. I think some people struggle with that. I'm counseling a young man right now, and I said, if you're truly saved, and he tells me he's born again, I said, if you're truly saved, you have victory over sin. That is a mark of being crucified with Christ, that you have victory over sin. If you can't gain victory over sin, then you have a problem. And the problem is that you have not been crucified with Christ. Don't tell me you're born again. Show me you're born again. Not by meeting my expectations, but by becoming like Christ. By becoming like Christ. I'm not interested in the do's and don'ts. I'm, think, I'm interested in being, I mean, we have a magnificent God, and if you study his attributes, they are mighty. God doesn't ask us to be omniscient. God doesn't ask us to be omnipresent. God doesn't ask us to be omnipotent. But God does ask us to be holy. And he has empowered us to be holy through his son. If we're truly complete in him, if we truly understand that we died to him and died with him at Calvary, then sin no longer has control of us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Romans 8, 37 says this, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Victory through Jesus Christ. Victory through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 6, it's as simple as by faith saying no. To reckon ourselves dead and saying no to sin. If you can't say no to sin, if you're not victorious, then maybe you haven't been born again. That's not what I say. I think that's what the scriptures clearly teach. Sometimes we live rather powerless lives because we choose to do so. God's changed us. 
my biggest fear as I go around and talk to people and, and, and listen to people is that people have somehow got this idea of Christianity that Jesus Christ is something you add to your life. It's like, you know, young men grow up and they get married, they add marriage to their life, they add a spouse to their life, and pretty soon they add kids to their life, and, you know, they add a new job to their life, and it's just part of their life. We're going to talk about this a little more tonight, but he says in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, when Christ who is our life, when Christ who is our life, it's not something we add to our life, it's not something that's an addition If we've been crucified with Christ and we've been risen again with Christ, Christ must be our life. If we're going to be complete in him, he must be our life. If he's not the first and primary priority, then the rest of the priorities don't work. The rest of the priorities don't work. The death of Christ brings transformation, pardon, and victory and it's only through Christ that we're going to be able to obtain that victory. You want victory? You want victory? Paul said this in Galatians. This is taught in Romans. This is taught in Galatians. This is taught in Corinthians. First and second. This is taught in Ephesians. This is taught in Colossians. This is taught in Philippians. Paul got it. He wants us to get it. He wants us to understand it. This is what Paul says. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We're going to talk more about that tonight. If the world's crucified to us, then where should we be at? How should that reflect? How should that reflect in our lives? It's not in wearing a suit on Sunday morning. But it does reflect. It does reflect in our lives. If the world is crucified to us. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning. Help us to be able to say with Paul that I glory in the cross of Lord Jesus Christ, that the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. And then, Father, help us to understand what that means. Father, we would be those who can say with Paul that Christ is our life. He's not 10%. He's not the first 10%. He's not something that we've added like marriage or children. But it is what motivates us, what drives us, what we live for. Oh, Father, help us to reckon ourselves dead to this world and alive in newness of life because we've been raised again with Christ. Father, we pray for those who have not had their sins forgiven, who have not turned to Jesus Christ and said, thank you for substituting for me 
Thank you for taking the death penalty that I so rightly deserved on myself. So that, Father, they might also have victory over sin. Father, help those who do not have victory over sin to understand where they stand in relationship with Jesus Christ. So that, Father, they might truly gain the victory that Christ won there at Calvary. And, Father, we thank you that you've given him a name that is above every name. That you have honored him for his victory there that day. That victory that he gained through weakness. That victory that is so hard to understand because it was through crucifixion. A victory through the very thing we fear, death. They're a very instrument from which we so fear. Father, that was through that instrument, death itself, that he gained this great victory. Well, Father, we thank you for that. So we thank you that the fear of sin and death and hell have been totally removed from us because of our death with Christ there at Calvary. Well, Father, help us to live those victorious lives that others around us might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, that Christ might be glorified in all that we do. Father, we ask that you'd bless our time together today and look forward to tonight when we can look into your word again. We give you thanks in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.